Hello and welcome to this edition of Sentencing Matters, a podcast from the Queensland Sentencing Advisory Council. Sentencing Matters, a podcast that informs, engages and advises on sentencing issues in Queensland. I'm Debbie Kilroy, a member of Queensland Sentencing Advisory Council. In this edition, I'm speaking with Julie Sharp, Deputy President of the Queensland Parole Board, who was appointed in June 2017. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, Debbie. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be appointed on the parole board? Sure. Well, my background is primarily in criminal defence. I started my career as a law clerk at Legal Aid Queensland more than 20 years ago and progressed through the ranks there and ultimately found myself as in-house counsel at Legal Aid. I then went to the private bar where, again, I focused on criminal defence work but also prosecuted and I've done work in other areas for government and in the cranial sphere as well. Hmm. So there's obviously other members on the board, so Michael Byrne QC and Peter Shields. Can you just tell us a bit about their background? Michael Byrne QC is a well-known and well-respected barrister. His background is in prosecution and defence, so a long history in criminal law. He was an acting district court judge at one stage. Peter Shields has experience in criminal defence as well, but started his career in the criminal justice system as a police officer. So the three of us come from a background in criminal law, all of us experienced in that area and very interested in parole. And there's other professional members on the parole board. So is it three lawyers and one psychologist, is that right? Three lawyers, so four professional board members, Mm -hmm. three lawyers, all very experienced, and one health member who has a background in psychiatric nursing. She had a background in prison mental health services. Okay, great. And they're the... So yourself, Michael and Peter, and the other four professional board members are the full-time members of the Parole Board of Queensland? Yes, we comprise part of the full-time membership. In addition to that, there are police representatives, three permanent police representatives, three permanent public service representatives who come from a background in probation and parole. And then there's other members that aren't full-time, so where do they come from? They're community members, so they come from a range of backgrounds across the state of Queensland, some from law backgrounds, but not all. They're members of the community who expressed interest in being part of the new parole board. Mm. There's a community member on each member of the board and they rotate through. There are men, women, Indigenous members, as I said, ranging in backgrounds from people who own bookstores to people with background in media, people Mm. who... Um, have backgrounds in social work and psychology, Hmm. a very broad range of So people from the community. That's right. And so how does the actual parole board work? The parole board uh, sits usually with five members to decide parole applications. So the legislation dictates how many members for what kind of matter, and I won't go into all of that detail. Hmm. But by and large, there's a (laughs) five-member board chaired by either Michael, Peter or myself, with one each of the other categories of permanent board members, so a professional board member, police, public service representative and a community member. In advance of the meetings, we will have read material relating to the parole applications and considered it ourselves, and then one by one we go through each application and consider it, discuss it and decide it. Okay. And if we could take a step back for a minute. So the parole board is an independent board? That's right. So it's an independent statutory body independent of corrective services 
and that's a really important part of yep. the operation of the parole board. We're not answerable to the government, we're not answerable to the media. Um, we operate as a completely independent body. And your decisions stand as an independent body? That's right. Yep. So you're not part of corrective services? No. We, of course, seek information and obtain information mm. from all sorts of sources, including, importantly, corrective services. Accommodation is a big issue for mm. people applying for parole. And each parolee or parole applicant is required to submit an address for assessment. The parole board is given an assessment conducted by probation and parole, but a determination that the accommodation is not suitable by that part of corrective services isn't determinative. The parole board will independently decide whether mm. it thinks that the accommodation is suitable or not. So that's just one example of yeah. the independence. Sure. And in Queensland, we have two types of parole, court-ordered parole and parole where you get an eligibility date from the court. Can you just explain the difference between the two? Sure. So court-ordered parole is exactly that. It's ordered by the sentencing court. It's available for sentences of under three years imprisonment, except in cases involving serious violent offences or sexual offences. A court-ordered parole order means that the person is released on the date the judge or magistrate orders release. The conditions are very broad and the person once released is then managed by probation and parole. Parole eligibility is different, so for sentences of beyond three years and in some other circumstances, a court will make an eligibility date and that's a date that the court effectively recommends that a person be eligible or considered for parole. And in that case, the board makes a decision at that time whether the person should in fact be released on parole. So if a person's sentenced to a period of time and their sentence is finished, can the parole board continue to detain that person? If the sentence has completely expired? Yeah. No. So once a person's term of imprisonment's finished, the issue of parole has expired. It's only in cases where the Dangerous Prisoner Sexual Offender Act comes into play that somebody might be detained beyond their full-time release date. And just to cover all aspects too, so a person gets sentenced to a term of imprisonment which is longer than three years, so an eligibility date is set, can the parole board keep someone in prison, detain them in prison after that eligibility date? Yes is the simple answer. Yeah. So... Once an application's made and a person's eligible for parole, the board will look at a range of material provided to it, again, from various sources, to determine whether release to parole is an acceptable risk. Mm -hmm. So the parole board's highest priority is community safety, and that's mandated by the ministerial guidelines. And so with that in mind, the parole board will consider a whole range of factors, conduct in custody, courses completed, the stability of accommodation available when released, all of those kinds of things to determine whether that person presents an acceptable risk to the community. I think talked about a little bit before or identified a bit before an issue around accommodation, for example. So what are the biggest barriers to a person being granted parole, being successful in their parole application? Accommodation's a really big issue Mm. and Michael, Peter and I, since coming on board in July last year, have been surprised and unpleasantly surprised at the difficulty people have obtaining Mm. suitable accommodation. And sometimes, very unfortunately, that's the only barrier to release. And so one of the things that, as a new board, we've focused on is trying to unlock 
more accommodation options and we're continuing to work on that. Other barriers would include conduct in custody. One of the things that we're talking to people in custody, potential parole applicants about, is the way the parole board makes decisions and that's on an evidence-based model. And so as a very general example, if a person's in custody for drug offending or drug-related offending and they're continuing to use Mm. drugs in custody, there's every chance they're not going to be considered a suitable candidate for parole. That's not a blanket rule, of course, and every case is different. But that would be a barrier, conduct in custody, accommodation. Accommodation is the big one. It is a big one, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's tragic that we don't have enough accommodation for people because that actually keeps so many people in past their eligibility date. That's right. They're not released. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so what type of conditions would the parole board put on somebody within their order, their parole order, to be released? Right, there's standard conditions which are Mm -hmm. legislated and they include things that you would expect. For example, you can't commit an offence. There's a standard now monitoring and curfew condition which will allow probation and parole to impose conditions to keep track of people and that's usual in the first little while after a person's released to make sure people settle after release from custody. In terms of additional conditions, the new parole board did a lot of work very early on to try and streamline the many and varied conditions that were being placed on people's parole orders, which resulted in pages and pages of conditions. So we've refined them into categories. So for somebody who has committed fraud offences, for example, because of a gambling problem, Mm. then there might be a condition around gambling. For people who um, have uh, an alcohol problem that's led to their offending, there will be conditions about alcohol and not attending licensed premises. So we really try and tailor those additional conditions to the reason behind the offending. So it's more about looking at the individual person's parole application and tailoring conditions that actually will ameliorate the risk to the community um, in the context of who they are as a person, as a human being, Absolutely. Um, tailored to them, not just blanket conditions that, across the board. That's exactly yeah. right. And as I've said, we're using the video link more and more to talk to mm. parole applicants. Um, it's primarily about community safety, but it, the reality is that if the parole applicant succeeds, well, everybody succeeds. And so the conditions are as much aimed at protection as at assisting the person to overcome the problems that saw them going to prison in the first place. Yeah. And so... One of those conditions could be, I think, because this is a fairly new condition that's being used, and that's the GPS tracking device. Yes. Yes. So how do they work? Uh, Controversially. (laughs) uh, People on parole don't like them because traditionally the GPS devices have been applied only to Mm. sex offenders. And so with the rolling out of GPS monitoring for the general population, there's been a lot of controversy about that and part of the work that's being done is to try and educate the public and people who are being released on parole that this is not just about sex offenders. It is used in cases where, and again, it's a case-by-case basis and it's individually considered, where, for example, there have been issues relating to the offending with association with certain people to keep an eye on where the person's going when there's a curfew in order to monitor the curfew 
and it's not forever. So it's designed to be a tool to allow probation and parole to monitor a person in high-risk times. Yeah. And you're right, there is a lot of stigma around GPS trafficking devices because they've only really ever been used and publicised to the community as well mm. that those convicted of sex offences have the GPS monitoring device. So mm. it will take a lot of education, That's not right. only with the community, but those people inside prison as well mm. because I imagine they'd be quite fearful that they're going to be labelled as sex offenders. Absolutely, and we've certainly heard cases where people have said that they'd rather go back to prison than yes. wear the bracelet because of the stigma attached mm. and so there is certainly work to be done on educating people about the fact that this isn't just about sex offenders. Mm. So when considering a parole application, how does the board assess potential risk? In a range of ways and again depending on the individual there are cases that are far more simple than others. Mm. In more complex cases we will have access to a lot more material and potentially risk assessment reports by a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Mm -hmm. So in cases where there is a level of complexity and a high level of potential risk to the community, despite us having information that a person's done courses and behaved very well and all those kinds of things, we will sometimes commission expert opinion to tell us more about risk assessment from that expert mm -hmm. point of view. In general cases, there's five people with a range of experience who will have read material provided by corrective services which detail past offending, conduct in custody, courses completed. Mm. We'll have access to sentencing remarks, um, letters of support, for example. It's very helpful when we have letters from community organisations who are able to assist and all of that goes into the mix yeah. uh, with all of our combined experience to make a determination about whether the support available given historical matters and what's um, changed while in custody to make that determination. And does the parole board have scope to bring in an independent consultant or expert, whether it's a psychiatrist, a psychologist or um, someone maybe with mental health expertise? Yes. Or do you just got to rely on the one person that's no, no, um, no. on the board, the professional member? No, we commission reports independently from other experts yep. and we very often commission psychiatrists to prepare reports, particularly in cases where there's been serious violent offending mm. or sex offending. Yep. We'll have an expert assess that person and provide a report. Mm. Okay, and so once a decision is made to release someone on parole into the community, what involvement then does a parole board have with that person? Or does a parole board have any more involvement? Well, if all goes well, we'll have no involvement. If the wheels fall off, then the parole board might receive a request from probation and parole to suspend a person's parole. Hmm. And in that case, the initial decisions made by what's called in the legislation a prescribed board member who is one of the professional board members mm -hmm. and within two business days then the full board sits to either confirm or otherwise that decision to suspend. Yep. So that's I suppose the most formal way the parole board will be involved after release. <coughs> there have been cases where things have started to go wobbly if you like and probation and parole have worked with us and we've had video links to try and work out what's going on before it gets to that suspension yep. point. But yes, we do have some ongoing involvement when things go wrong. Hmm. 
And so can you just go through the process if someone has breached their parole condition? So what actually happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the process as far as the parole board's concerned is that we will receive what's called an advice to parole board, which details the breaches or the concerns relating to risk. So the suspension might be requested on the basis of failures to comply, so a person failed to report, failed to provide a sample for testing, mm-hmm. for example. Like a urine, urine test, test to tell right. the board or tell probation parole that they've been maybe using drugs that's right. and or alcohol if that's the issue. Yeah. Yes, or if there's perceived to be an unacceptable risk of further offending. So mm-hmm. that might be based on the fact that somebody's been charged with offences or that they've been using drugs um, or a range of other reasons. The professional board member will receive that report and make an assessment of the request and make the decision then whether to suspend mm. or otherwise. It's not a rubber stamp. There are a number of occasions where the professional board member has declined to suspend on the basis of the advice. Um, but if they do decide to suspend, then as I said, the matter will come before a full board to discuss that decision. And if it's decided by the full board to confirm the decision, then usually at that point there's discussion about, well, where to from here? Mm. And so in a case where there's obvious issues relating to mental health or homelessness, then the board will request an accommodation risk assessment that some work be done on getting the person accommodation. If there's mental health problems, then we'll refer that person to prison mental health and provide a copy of the advice so that Mm. the wheels are in motion then to work towards addressing whatever issue resulted in the person going back into custody. You talked before about the whole process of assessing a parole application and I was just thinking when you were talking there and I was wondering about, um, because there's people in prison that have committed offences where there's actual victims, mm-hmm. like other human beings, and mm-hmm. um, I'm not talking about the local Woolies or Coles or mm. the train station or whatever. I'm talking about actual people <coughs> that have been harmed. Mm. So do victims have... Can they have input in regards to parole decision? Yes, there is a victims register mm-hmm. where people who are the victims of crime can provide submissions to the parole board, which are taken into consideration as part of the application process. Mm. With all the other material before the board. That's yep. right. Yep. Yeah. And for example, a victim might tell us that they have an objection to a person living in a particular location and things like that. Sure. And those things are taken very seriously by the parole board with its mandate, as I said, to protect the community. So Mm. yes, victim submissions are taken on board. So when someone has finished their parole Mm. and comes to an end, so how does the the sentencing loop close off? Well, that is the end of the sentencing Mm. loop. Once a person sentenced to three years imprisonment, they're released on parole after the 12-month mark, everything goes well and the three years is up, well, that's the end of the sentencing process. Mm. For some people who have ongoing issues and struggles, that sentencing loop can continue for some time. So if somebody's released on parole, commits further offences, they might then be sentenced to another term of imprisonment, which will result in a Mm. new parole eligibility date, and so it goes. But the parole board then will become involved at every time there's a new eligibility date to reconsider. But if they've complied with their parole conditions, their order, mm-hmm. and the date ends of the actual sentence yes. that uh, was handed down in a court of law, 
um, that's the they end. are no longer monitored by the parole board or any or probation or parole for that matter. That's right. That's yes. the end of it. Yeah. Mm. Having said that, the sentencing loop closes at the end of a person's period of parole. There's an important issue related to that, and that is whether community safety will benefit from a person having a period of supervision. The purpose of parole, an important purpose of parole, is to reintegrate people from prison into the community. And there are benefits in having a person supervised for a period in the community before their sentence ends. As uh, the now Justice Sofronoff observed in the Queensland Parole System Review, all prisoners, aside from those who are serving terms of life imprisonment, will one day Mm. be released regardless. And so the issue is whether it's better in terms of community safety to release somebody at their full-time release date with Mm. no supervision, potentially no home to go to, Mm. no family support, or is it better to release somebody at their eligibility date or soon after because all of the appropriate protections are in place so that that person can have the benefit of supervision, some assistance with drug addiction, for example, somebody looking out for them, approved accommodation, those kinds of things to set them up so that when the sentence is at an end, they've had a period of stability and assistance before the end of the loop. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Sentencing Matters and thanks, Julie, for talking to us today. It's been great. For those of you who'd like to find out some more information on sentencing issues in Queensland, you can head to our website, sentencingcouncil.qld.gov.au. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you.